0: The following podcast is brought to you by OpenG Records. OpenGRecords.com is where you'll find podcasts like this one, blogs about music, art, and life, as well as some killer music. So come check it all out at OpenGRecords.com. I did this interview with composer David Glazer some time ago and sat on it until the proper time, which is now, uh, because I and the Momenta Quartet, uh, as well as a couple of other musicians, are going to be premiering David's new work, in one breath at the center for jewish history monday night april 27th coming up 7 30 p.m that's at 15 west 16th street here in manhattan in new york city i think david is a really interesting person and a really interesting composer and a close friend and i hope you enjoy the interview you're about to hear my guest today david glazer I'm very happy to have you in my man cave for this continuing series of podcasts from OBG Records. So welcome, David. Thank you for being
1: here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about, let's start about how we met, actually, because we have a pretty personal connection. Um, yes. I believe it was around 2004 or five that um, I was teaching at East Carolina University in North Carolina, and I played a piece of yours on a concert that you came
1: down for. Yes, and one of the things that I remember about that was just how extraordinary your playing was, and of and course, I, <laughs> of course, no, thank you, no, but no, it was it was terrific, and um, I can't say that. How should we put this? Let's just say
0: that overall it was not a successful performance. Okay,
1: that's that's a fine way to put it. Overall it was not a successful performance. <laughs> so if you but... did the math and there were two
0: people involved in the performance uh... and one and one <laughs> did well. And I was quite, a, you know, I was upset afterwards because it's... A um I, you know, as a performer you always want to play well anyway, much less when a composer is actually in 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 the hall with you and you've come down from New York and all of this and I was just really I was embarrassed, actually, mm-hmm. that you would come that distance, and so we started to talk. I said, let's write something that we can control, and and we'll make something good out of it. Yes. And so, we talked originally about a piece for clarinet, and any any combination of things, yeah. I right, think it, was
1: some, it, it was going to be modest, in yeah. fact, initially, but Yeah. of course... Just a little thing, yes.
0: to be like, okay, sorry for that experience let's have a little little piece that we can make successful.
1: Yes, and because no good deed goes unpunished, <laughs> I decided to write you a concerto.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it went through like a, it was going to be a clarinet quintet at one point and then like became like a thing where it became a full concerto with orchestra. Yes.
1: I thought it went from two players to 30 with nothing in between is <laughs> my, my recollection
0: maybe so um, I ended up putting an orchestra together and we we premiered a concerto that you wrote for me um, which was which was which was great but you know you and I still had not developed as friends right at all and then when I arrived in the city um, you were the first person to actually like reach out to me and say welcome to New York. And, and let's hang, which yes. um, led to where we became friends, I think, which was on a mm-hmm.
1: gigantic walk. Yes, I, I punished you again. <laughs> one, yes, I
0: a lot of the people who, who listen to this don't live in New York, and um, if you visit New York, one of the things people realize immediately is that walking is, is just how you get around, basically, and it can be yeah. punishing, and you are a walker, and I am a, a roly-poly person who doesn't walk, As much, and I I thought I was going to die. You walked
1: me for four or five hours in Flushing. In Flushing. But to your credit, you did not. You didn't complain. Not (laughs) a peep, not a word. I had absolutely no idea that you were were in pain at that point. I'm a team player, you know. And I was interested.
0: Also, so, so again, people who don't live in the city may not know Flushing is in Queens, which is... Uh, Flushing is as far out into Queens as as one can get on the 7 train. Right. Uh, It's the very last stop. And when you grew up,
1: when you were growing up in Flushing, um, were you born in Flushing? No, I was born in Manhattan, and my parents wanted me to have the rural life, so they moved out to Queens. And back then, I mean, it sounds funny to say now, but that actually... So
0: what year would uh, that, that have been when you moved out to Queens?
1: Probably fifty four, fifty five. And you were born, I was born in fifty two. Okay, so, so you don't remember Manhattan at all. Uh, no, not from that. Not not before. Not not until after I started coming back. Um, and when I grew up, in, in, you know, in an area that's now pretty well developed, I remember as a kid there were ponds where you could, you know, go mm-hmm. and catch frogs.
0: I mean <laughs> yeah uh you don't find those in flushing you
1: don't find those in flushing anymore well that was actually that was in Kew gardens so i mean could, where is that could, it's another let's say 2 miles past oh the the um so the train does not 7 train does the 7 go up train before. does not go it's it's in what we used to call a two fare zone when you had to pay <laughs> separate fares for the bus and the subway before they instituted the the metro card and the, the free transfer so uh so for any old New Yorkers, uh, the Two fare Zone means something, just like talking about the subways now. And and if you speak to someone who grew up here a while ago, they'll talk about the IRT and the IND and the BMT, which are essentially meaningless. Yeah, I have no idea. You just talk about the one, two, and three train, right? Right. The, so I you know, see they. So when did they when did they number the trains? Oh, they were they had been numbered from oh, the beginning, I but see. there were three separate privately owned transportation companies: <laughs> the Interborough Rapid Transit yeah. the Brooklyn and Manhattan Rapid Transit and then the Independent Oof. and that's why the IND trains that, sorry that's why those letter trains that go out to Queens the cars are bigger
0: they yeah are bigger. I, know, I yeah. know that but I yeah. why it's why? because
1: it was a separate company and they, they just built oh. bigger, bigger tracks with bigger trains I
0: just assumed that they got and sweeter stuff and then they kind of like as they wore out then they went to the shittier lines or
1: something <laughs> no no No, not quite. But uh, so that was uh, so there were these you know separate, independent transit companies that then got turned into the all got I was about to say nationalized all got turned into you know (laughs) city city owned civilized yes a city owned uniform transit system.
0: I'm amazed that even now on the trains that like certain lines just have shittier cars. Uh, If I'm on the C train, it's always. Yeah, Just like ones. something from the 1970s, right. and then I get on, like, you know, the F or, or, or even the 7 going out, and it's, like, super nice, well-lit. Right. Right. Who who decides the hierarchy of who gets the nice trains? I don't know. Probably the people who vote. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So, Flushing, getting back yeah. to, to that, when you were growing up out there, was
1: a predominantly Jewish... Well, it was it was almost all, how should we say, European Americans white Americans and it was demographics were let's say 40 to 45 percent Protestant 40 to 45 percent Jewish mm. and then that the rest the 10 to 20 percent were Catholic and mm. almost it was almost all white there was I remember there was an AME church in Flushing um, so a small so African small African-American American mm. community um, and you know, it's certainly not the case now. No, because nowadays,
0: <laughs> if, again, uh, it was a surprise to me walking off the train into Beijing. It's like, you know, so mm. few signs even have English. It's like yeah. so... It, I go down to Chinatown in Manhattan and I'm like, this is nothing. That's because right, flushing yeah. is so mind-blowing for me getting off there. So when... When did that switch happen, do you know? I mean. Yeah,
1: well, it was... Um, I don't remember the exact years... Were so you was were around se- for, oh, to yeah, watch that? I was, I was around to watch it. Uh, this is going to be semi-impressionistic, but... Um, <laughs> which is a nice way of saying I'm making stuff up. Oh. Um, <laughs> at a certain point, when... What happened was the South Bronx... When, when the Bronx really started to deteriorate... Um, a lot of people, a lot of blacks and Hispanics, started to move from the South Bronx into Flushing, which, of course, triggered some white flight and a decrease in property values. But it also happened to coincide with the beginnings of Asian immigration. So when the, I think it was the Hart seller Immigration Act, but there was an immigration act in the '60s um, that eliminated the quotas, uh, which had, were heavily skewed towards Western Europeans and against everybody else. Mm-hmm. So when those when that was changed, um, it allowed for more immigration of Asians, and the Asians who were coming in. I mean, like every immigrant group, entrepreneurial people. Um, they started looking around to see where they could move to, where they could buy property. Right. I and mean, it's s-
0: one thing to uh, dream of of crossing an ocean to be somewhere that might give you a better chance. It's another thing to actually have to put food on the table when when the chips are down, when it right. actually has to happen. Right. Right. So exactly. yeah.
1: So what happened was the these these Asians who were coming in saw that you know they were looking for wh- where are they going to find real estate bargains. And somehow they, they decided that Flushing was the place. And so there was an immigration of South Asians, relatively small, but mostly then Koreans and then Chinese. And, and this so, is around
0: what, what year, uh,
1: impressionistically? <laughs> that I would say, although actually the immigration laws changed much earlier, it's prob- it was probably around the 1980s mid 80s when this whole thing started to happen when first the decline started and then the the kind of I mean the decline in property values and then the sort of reinvigoration based on just the fact that uh, people with a little bit of capital and uh, you know a lot of um, enthusiasm mm-hmm. moved in and yeah, it's just very bustling it into, now. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's I mean it's, it's insane Yes, yeah. it's like rush hour all day long. All and day going long, yeah.
0: into one of those underground malls yes. is is, is hair-raising, but awesome. Because yeah. yeah. uh, that's where the good food is at. I yeah. mean, okay. uh, when, you, when it's a place that's only got Chinese people that are yeah. eating there, then that's where I want to have my lunch, yes, for sure. Yes. And uh, we're going to get into your foodie tendencies okay. <laughs> later on, <laughs> on in this. So growing up, yeah. um, one of the things that's interesting... To me, about you as a composer, and we're going to get into this a lot during this, is that you weren't—you did not grow up playing an instrument, right. Um, right? So, when you were growing up, what what were your musical influences? What did you listen to? Right.
1: Um, well, was
0: it a big presence in your house, or
1: or or what? Yeah, well, it was a big presence at home, and I mean, the earliest things that I can re- among my earliest memories. Um, are those listening to music and or sitting music. in front of sitting in front of the the, the one speaker because music was still mono mm-hmm. then? So sitting in front of the one speaker and listening to the two things that I remember: "Eine kleine Nachtmusik Musik" and "The Rite of Spring." <laughs> <laughs> are these on records? Yep, on records. Um, and <laughs> I can I can still see the the records themselves. They were the the. Um, uh, the Mozart was one of those typical 1950s designs. It was a blue jacket with, with a sort of ink drawing of musicians, and <laughs> the Rite of Spring was the um, the Henri Rousseau painting of the snake charmer. I know what you're talking and about. And so yeah, so I I just remember sitting listening to the music and holding these record jackets and sitting a couple of inches away from mm-hmm. the speaker. Uh, I think that's something that people
0: miss yeah. and that people are, are, are getting back to is that tactile sensation of holding it like the, the record mm. in your hands mm. and also the fact that the jacket is a satisfying size yes. to like actually be able to see detail or design elements that on a CD jacket and nowadays you don't even you don't even get a CD jacket right. you look at maybe something online or something like right, that right. but in rock and roll, it's you know people are making nine inch and twelve inch LPs uh, now that mm. with corresponding great art on the. Yeah. Uh, I hope that classical music uh, gets back I into hope some I do of get that. Back to that. Yeah, it, speaking of Open different. G Records, yes, <laughs> dot com will be selling vinyl, but. Excellent. Probably not by the time that people are listening to this but right That's well. part of the tip but that we're on Yes. So getting back to it So Anna Clendenach Music and R- R- Rite of, the of the spring. spring And how old are you when we were talking about this? Three <laughs>
1: <laughs> And you were handling, were you playing the records yourself? No, my parents were, as I recall They were they were putting them on for me And as it turned out, I, I mentioned this years later To my mother, who said that she For years hated the Rite of Spring But she indulged me Because you uh, liked it Because I liked it so so, I, I had no idea. Uh, but but why was, did she do you know? She just was making too the sacrifice. I guess I don't making know. a sacrifice. Uh, I like uh, it. Right. Um, uh,
0: yeah. So were they your parents classical music fans, or did they just think that you would would be good for you?
1: No, they were they were fans. I remember, but there was that, and they were and there were Broadway albums. So I grew up with. Uh, uh, My Fair Lady also and mm-hmm. that, that whole and do you, genre do of... do you
0: still enjoy that stuff or do you... Is it sentimental
1: or... It's partially sentimental but I do enjoy some of it still. Uh, some of it is, is actually pretty well crafted. No doubt. I'm a sucker like yeah, for some yeah, of
0: that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, a pretty song is... So, yeah. what about when, as you got older? What what did you listen to mostly classical music on your own, or did you have a that in Broadway, or you, you never developed a rock and roll interest?
1: That's right i never I never developed an interest in the real popular genres. I did. And still that's amazing to to that beer. you were growing yeah. up in
0: the sixties yeah. and seventies, and, and you avoided yeah. that. Yeah. It's... it's it,
1: it never <laughs> appealed to me. So I'll put in my own plug now um, yeah. on my CD, oh. Kinesis, um, with cover art by my wife, Linda Plotkin. <laughs> um, the uh, the program notes were written by our friend Stephen Dembski. And Steve, for years, was... Sort of threatening to out me as someone who never listened to, <laughs> who never listened to rock music, <laughs> and um, when came time f- to write the program notes to get the program notes written, uh, I asked him to do it, and I said, "Here's your opportunity. Right. You can you can tell people all about my <laughs> my my lurid past of not having anything to do with 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 popular music, <laughs> which he did, of course. Of course, uh, no, those are
0: really good notes. Actually, I think." Uh, as, as notes go they're usually pretty dry and the notes on your record don't read like yeah. record notes which is yeah so Kinesis yes. on another yeah. on another label that will not be that I will not <laughs> plug but I will plug the record you should get it it's good it's on iTunes yeah yes it
1: is it's really good it is um, yes I, you know iTunes is certainly convenient but what you were talking about before about the physical object I still I still find it difficult to download. Mm-hmm. music because I want the, oh, I yeah. want the physical object I want to have something yeah. that I can hold and maybe it goes back to being a kid uh, also you know I think that,
0: jackets. I think that people even somebody my age I'm 42 um, by the time I'm in my master's degree the internet is starting to flourish and by the time I'm in my doctor degree Napster and music sharing things are starting to flourish where you can get music of any sort from anybody that you want for free at any time. Now, of course, they closed that down and it's all obsolete, but there's a whole, just like politically, there's a whole, there's this whole shift in the world that's taken course that I think people f- who are even slightly older than me find it difficult to understand that somebody, anybody younger than me, expects to get music for free. You just expect right. it. Mm-hmm. You don't expect to hold it in your hands. You expect it to be either on on, on the cloud now. You don't mm-hmm. even have to have it on your phone. You can have it anytime you want from the cloud, mm-hmm. and it's a wholesale change, but just like a lot of... Sorry to be talking about this a lot. That's just a like a lot of artisanal things like cooking or beer making or something, mm-hmm. there is a movement back to, hey, it was pretty cool to actually make stuff. And it was pretty cool to actually hold things in your hand Mm -hmm. that aren't just so ethereal. And that the art was important. And that the liner notes were important. So Mm -hmm. did you begin to flesh out your library and classical stuff?
1: Yes. That was essentially almost all that I ever bought were classical LPs.
0: And when did you decide to go to college for this? Did you go to an undergraduate with the idea of I want to write music for a living?
1: Well, when I was an undergraduate, I, by that point, I was <coughs> somewhere between thinking about music and thinking about art. as Like visual art? Visual art as a career. Um, and what really tipped the balance, because again, you're, you're right, I didn't grow up playing I didn't grow up seriously playing any instruments. When I was a kid, we had a couple of piano lessons, but we didn't have a piano. I see. This was when you could get piano lessons in the New York City public schools. You (laughs) probably had to pay for them. And it may have been, you know, I'm sure it would have been something ridiculous, like a dollar for a piano lesson. But they had somebody on staff. But they had, there was somebody there who would sit down with you and, Hmm. you know, give you a piano lesson.
0: That was what I was going to ask. When did you you learn to read music then?
1: Uh, well, started to yeah, ish, and then I had a couple of violin lessons. But it was one of these situations where I was the only person in a class full of people in a room full of people playing the guitar. So I see. You know, again, I was the sort of the odd person out uh, in that, <laughs> and so that didn't last either. And then in junior high, I played French horn in the in the. I did not know that high school band and well that was the only the and that was why i went to my junior high graduation because I, I had to be there to be in the pit otherwise i would <laughs> probably wouldn't have gone not a joiner uh, you know and then in high school i started playing classical guitar i think one of my cousins had a guitar and i started just sort of picking it up when we were visiting and i thought that was pretty cool i really liked the sound of it uh um, what about it there was just the the actual the, the just the, the quality of the sound of the guitar the, what about of the resonance of it <laughs> and um, uh, there was a I don't know I guess sort of intimacy to the sound and that's what I like mm-hmm. and
0: there's only so I you know I go yeah. to classical music or sorry classical guitar concerts yeah. and I'm like could you speak up a little bit <laughs> right of course you know, it's, uh, yes, the, it is. you're right there's a there's a certain threshold of volume that it doesn't pass it kind right. of all exists in like a a yard of of space around right. you right interesting. well
1: segovia said that his what he would do at concerts was he when he played the first piece he would play it super quiet to force everybody to really really mm. focus and concentrate and then subsequent pieces he would play at interesting whatever volumes the the guitar could manage and so people's perception was that it was louder because they they had they really had to recalibrate their yeah. whole expectation that's, exactly. That's in that really first interesting. Piece. Uh, and of course now you know now that I'm playing obscure. Renaissance instruments that are as almost as quiet as the guitar. Yeah. It seems that that's that's what I gravitate to. Uh, the gamba sounds like it, you know, like it's booming compared to the guitar. Yeah, like right. But it's really still a really loud instrument. But it is. Oh, like, it is. No, right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's yeah. still a rather
0: contained yeah. Yeah. environment. Yeah, that's so. Um, were you were you an only child? Do you have brothers and sisters? Uh,
1: I had a younger brother um, who was severely autistic. And, in fact, died earlier this year. Uh, I don't think we even talked about that because it was wow. just
0: such a... Um, it's all That's all news to me. Yeah. I think.
1: I yes, think it, is all, it is all news to you. And uh, now all no, news to everyone news else. <laughs> exactly. Um, he had been out of the house for many, many years, and I had, you um, know, in an odd way... You know it was one of these really weird things i was sort of an only child but i wasn't an only child Uh how much younger than you it was three years and so growing up was this kind of very strange situation of being being alone but still having a sibling and uh, that was uh, that that accounts for a lot of of different Things that went on, and, and yeah, I'm and like, I'm really my life sort of moved.
0: Yeah, I'm really. That's all. I, I've known you now for a number of years, and that I'm like, I, I'm surprised. I, I don't, I don't know any of that. All right, well, <laughs> no, so I could, so yeah. I could see. Did, were you? Did you have to take care of,
1: of your brother, or well, but, but was it, it hard t- on your parents? Oh, it was really hard on. Yeah, it was extremely hard on them, and because of that, part of. Part of that was, I knew even as, you know, when you're five or six, you can figure out a lot of stuff. Um, I knew it was hard on them, and I knew that they had to spend time Mm -hmm. taking care of him, so I tried to keep, um, I tried to keep my needs to a minimum, and I tried to keep my, sort of, my demands to a minimum.
0: And to learn how to, sort of, emotionally take care of yourself. Right.
1: Exactly. Which, of course, really wasn't.
0: Yeah, I mean uh, it's like uh, I, I I don't have anything that traumatic but there mm-hmm. there is a, a, a part of my childhood where wherein I, I sort of built my own reality one of my favorite folk singers Annie defranco call, yeah. talks about building your own empire out of car tires and chicken wire <laughs> and you do your it's best bad, yeah. as a child yeah. you, you kind of make something that you think you do your best impression of of, of making A reality for yourself that seems to be well constructed. Yeah. But as an adult, you look back and see what your little childish self made, and it's just not obviously not sufficient for a kid who's five or six to have to figure it out.
1: Yeah, and so that you know, it it had it had how should we say long term effects that, of course, in some ways you know will be with me forever. And in certain aspects of it, I've worked out and reconciled myself to. I,
0: I i think it i you know it's it's totally cheap analysis but i think it's um it is interesting that you're drawn to the small sounds of, and and drawn to like sort of making sound in your own small environment yeah when so you went to college with the dual idea of of art and were you sculpt were you sculpting painting 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 um and when when did the tipping point? What was there a, something that happened? Oh yeah,
1: the the, the tipping point was Piero Lunaire. <laughs> <laughs> and that piece. Um, it's interesting because a friend became a composer because he heard, Rite of Spring, about the same age that I heard Piero. But of course, I grew up with Rite of Spring, so that was old hat. Was, by yeah, that time. exactly. For me, that was you know from Lullaby that's and amazing and he was put off by the Rite of Spring in the same way that I was put off by PRO but unlike most people who get put off by a piece of music rather than saying this stinks and never listening to it again I thought there are people who have written about this piece of music as being an important mm-hmm. uh, seminal event in Western music just what is it? What's going on here? Why do I not like it? Right. And so I just sat down and I listened to it an awful lot. And
0: Were you looking at the score or were you just listening?
1: No, I was just listening at that point. And it suddenly occurred to me that Schoenberg had figured out something very important, had figured out a way into... I don't, you know, I was about to say into the 20th century, but that's, it's. Oh, it's kind of right. It's I, kind of I, right, I yeah. It. But it's, well, you know, it's almost as if this is convoluted, but like with most people, I, I guess at that point my sense was that that classical, this is in quotation marks, of course, that Western concert music ended with Brahms. Mm hmm. Maybe Mahler. Right. And. That there was this kind of wall, and that was it. You can give him um, the Firebird, St- yeah, the, right. the Stravinsky. You can uh, Firebird will
0: fit in there too. Oh, but sure, once yeah. you move into right Rinasbrand, yeah, then you've
1: got to get yeah. right? um, But again, because that was familiar to me, it just didn't. It didn't. In right. a sense, it didn't register. Right. Um, and so, my sense was that there was sort of this wall at nineteen ten and everything on one side of the wall was concert music and everything on Mm. the other side of the wall was all the other kinds of music that were out there broadway and whatever and you know i knew about copeland but i don't know how i don't know where i don't know how i categorized him, where i put him because clearly he's writing after brahms but the you know the pieces that I knew were the pieces everyone else knew it certainly wasn't the piano variations oh yes yeah. so the, uh, the more popular sorts of things yeah. so you figure, he was oh, even okay, writing that's... for movies so you yeah. might have even known yeah, thought been, of yeah. that yeah. yeah and so you know there was so I viewed I viewed I viewed 1910 or 11 as this kind of wall and thought that was it there's no there's no getting across it and then when i heard pro i realized that was the door in the wall through into the other side <laughs> i see and so the portal that, yeah exactly and that was that was what made me think wow there is you can continue this tradition
0: so by listening to something that you initially disliked over and over you had an epiphany yeah. about what's real and what's new
1: yeah. and i thought oh okay this is so here's here's an alternative here's a, here's a way to continue this even if it doesn't sound exactly like what came before it's part of it and and I could write this oh yeah well
0: (laughs) that's what's easier easier said than done I still it's still a piece that gives me a major headache I I I admire it yeah but um, I heard it I heard like a snippet of it for the first time, when I was in high school, maybe I was yeah. sixteen or seventeen, and I was like, "What the fuck <laughs> is that?" And I was, you know, fairly well versed mm-hmm. in it in classical music, and I and but I had never heard anything that sounded anything like that in right. my life, and it made me like it gave me a headache immediately. <laughs> and then when I studied it in college, obviously I have an admiration for it, but right. I still I would not listen to it of my own volition. It just is like never something that I would I would I would turn on. But yes. that's great. I, I love that there's an actual moment. So if, from then on, you were like, I can do this. Yeah. And that's when I. And where what where were you going to
1: school? I was at Hunter College at that point, point. and um, this was. Uh, I was at Hunter College, and I shouldn't have been in college, but I was in college. Well, because were, oh, was, right. This was this was during the Vietnam War, and so if I hadn't been <laughs> in school. So oh, what you're then, like a
0: seventh year senior or something? Or well you just I, I managed
1: to drag it on for five years, but um but the the draft the um the student deferments ended in the middle of this anyway, so my my safe haven of um of college was about to to stop being a safe haven. Oh right. the draft just, yes, is very was, real, right? Yes and I was uh number three in the lottery uh, and I took my pre-induction physical and oh, everything was... That's very every, scary. Yes, yes, I was... This was at Fort Hamilton in, in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, I was I was on my way to being uh, called up and it was just at that point that Nixon decided to declare victory and leave. <laughs> uh, and was started this before the after they were
0: taking Hueys off the... Roof top of the Hanoi Hilton.
1: Oh, this was this was before. Yeah. So they they, they it was very small yeah, when yeah, all of that yeah. happened. Yeah. So the de-escalation started, which means which meant that they stopped. They stopped the draft. Right. Uh, and what year is this? And they started roughly? pulling people out. I guess seventy-two. So you were third? No, it was my second year. You were twenty. I was twenty-one. Uh, seventy-two. Twenty. Twenty. Twenty-one. You're about you. And uh, so that's, that's, when the, that's when the de-escalation started and we eventually declared victory in London. <laughs> uh, and I got to stay at Hunter and continue my, my, my erring ways. And, and then
0: did you belong in college after that? Or when did you start to belong in college? Master's degree? Mas-
1: yeah, it wasn't until the master's program that I really started to, to belong and in college. And where was college. that? That was at Queens College. So between my bachelor's and my master's, I actually took uh, about seven years. Oh, off. really? Yeah, yeah. I, well, for one thing, I needed to, I needed to actually learn all the stuff that I should have been learning when I was an undergraduate and didn't, like so harmony, counterpoint.
0: You just study that on your own?
1: No, I I actually studied with Jacques Monod. Um, and he, you know, I owe him a tremendous
0: just as debt. A private student?
1: Yes, I, I studied privately with him. Uh, would go to his apartment every other week on the Upper West Side for what was supposed to be a two-hour lesson, starting at 8 p.m. And there were times when I didn't get out till 11:30 or 12 because we would just sit and work and talk. Did you listen to uh, music? Cigarettes? Yes. Well, actually, tobacco cigarettes. Tobacco or? cigarettes. Uh, tobacco cigarettes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, somehow, I can't imagine Jacques. Uh, <laughs> you never know what goes right on behind this people.
0: people. This is true.
1: Um, so he he more or less got me into shape. Um, oddly, I was dissatisfied. There was something about. The undergraduate education that I was getting—that I—that was not satisfactory, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And you know how much of it was just me uh, not being ready to work, and how much of it was uh, the way they were teaching. But in fact, when I went to him, I saw—I it did clarify all the things that I didn't like about the kind of education that they were doing there, and his approach was very different and it was the approach that worked for me and you know maybe you know I don't know uh, if we want to you know go back into uh armchair psychology (laughs) maybe it was you know maybe it was the fact that there was one person who was paying attention to me Mm -hmm. and I wasn't in a classroom and there was somebody Mm -hmm. who just gave me attention myself that's Uh, a very intense
0: relationship when you you know with a one-on-one, mm-hmm. old apprenticeship type yeah, of learning. Yeah,
1: yeah. And there were plenty of times he got pissed off at me, and it was actually good because it, you know, made me realize that I that I if I was serious, I really I had to be serious. That mm. um, takes hard work. Yeah. Well, what the, were you doing for a living while you were in yeah. those seven years of? Uh, well, a large part of it was wor- working in smoke shops. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I was, in fact. Um, <laughs> Macy's this, this shows you how long ago this was Macy's actually had a smoke shop see on the ground see smoke before.
0: shops uh, denote uh, a different I'm sorry thought tobacconists my, all right so all right so Macy's had like
1: a whole tobacconist like enclave yeah there was a little department you could buy cigars and pipes and you couldn't smoke them in the store but you could you could buy them. And I like then, the smell uh, of like pipe tobacco yeah, and pipes smoke. It. it makes so me pretty okay. happy. Yeah, but
0: so uh, you you worked in uh, yeah. as a tobacconist, if yes. you will.
1: Yes, I worked as a tobacconist for the whole and time there. For yeah. yeah,
0: were you still living out in Flushing? Yeah,
1: yeah I was out in Flushing uh, were you at and your and parents' then, place still. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, I, and there was I remember there was one summer when Jacques said to me, you know, you're going to spend the entire summer writing counterpoint. That's your summer, and I spent five hours a day. Ugh. Right in counterpoint. Oh, vey.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's pretty much. I would imagine, like you know, I still about an hour and a half a day bust yeah. on my scales. Right. You just got to put that. You got to do it. Or any, you know, I, I often liken what I do, at least as a performer, to athletics and you yeah. know, or, or dance, in yeah. the yeah. sense that the warm up and how you prepare your body and your mind for the experiences. Right. right. There, there is no fun. That that scut work oh, is just. it's yeah. no fun. I hate it. If I didn't have to practice, never ever would. That's mm-hmm. for damn sure. So, but master's degree for the for composition,
1: yes, and that was at Queen's College, and I worked with George Pearl and with Hugo Weissgall. and um, good Irish boys. Yes, yes, <laughs> and they were uh, well. I I put my time in there. Yeah. And there, actually, there were some, some good things about studying there. Um, I put my time in. One, um, one thing was that I finally did get the discipline to actually... I mean, by the time I got back there, I finally actually did have the discipline to make the experience of being in a school something that was not just completely odious I hated school from, I mean, from from kindergarten. Yeah, um, me too. I just I absolutely detested. School sucks. Every day of school through my bachelor's degree. School sucks. Yeah. Well,
0: I, even now, like when I have a, I, I, as you know, I, I, just, I have a kid and, and before we had him, we had to go to breastfeeding classes and like, you know, and I'm sitting on the floor of like a, a of a yoga studio and I'm just like, I'm in hell. School sucks. <laughs> so by, by the time you're in your master's degree, you could hang with it. Did you go yep. from your master's to your doctorate?
1: Uh, I think I took two years off, bust out and, some more smoke work, and yes, uh, exactly. And then uh, and I don't then even in, remember what I was doing. <laughs> um, and then in, to Columbia. And then to Columbia.
0: It's amazing, and you know. You managed to actually like spend your entire lifetime in New York. Yes, it's you know uh, that that's one of the things that endears you to me is that is that I I love the fact that you were a literal lifetime New Yorker, and you know where all the good stuff, well, well, you know where a lot of the good stuff is. Yeah, I try. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, when you got to Columbia, Mm -hmm. you worked with... Uh,
1: Well, I I went to, I went there specifically to study with Mario Davidovsky, Mm -hmm. Uh, and... I studied with him, I studied with George Edwards. Basically, I studied with almost everybody who was on the faculty at that point, except for Cho Sung. Not for any particular reason other than that. It just never worked out uh, right. for me to work with him. Um, and also, I guess one year Mario wasn't there, and I studied with Marty Boykin, who was visiting from Brandeis. Um, and everybody was great, and I got a lot of different things from... Uh, from each of the teachers. Mostly, uh, the most important, I guess, was Mario. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: what, what's, if there was one thing that you took away, what would be the biggest lesson that you took away from your from your doctor at work with Mario?
1: Um, Mario got me to stop thinking... Quite so linearly. Um, My first session with Mario, as I remember it, was something along the lines of going into his office, sitting down with him and having him say to me, "Um, here's an ensemble. You've got a French horn, a bass clarinet, and a string quartet. What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I don't even remember what what I said is actually not important, but I'm, it couldn't have been good, whatever it was. <laughs> and Mario said, "No, what you're going to do is you're going to have a unison Bartok pits with all four strings, and that note's going to be taken over by the bass clarinet. That note's going to be taken over by the French horn, and it's going to swell and it's going to cut off, and then the bass clarinet's going to have this big descending line. And what are you left with? You're left with." a board with a rusty nail sticking to it. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought, no one has ever talked to me about music like this, and his, his I mean, you, you could hear it in his music, um, but he got me to be much more tactile and mm. much more sensuous in, mm. in, in my handling mm-hmm. of materials. Seeing things aware.
0: like in a different medium, almost. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. and he half the time um, our lessons were they didn't sound like music lessons because he would I would come in with something and he would look at at I remember I was writing a a, a movement for orchestra and there was some little spot where there were uh, I think it was an oboe and a clarinet doing something and he said. Oh, that's really nice. It's like it's like two little animals nibbling on a cookie. <laughs> and all right, yeah. I whatever, mean, so, whatever. Yeah. You
0: know, I I love things references that make people think of anything uh, in music. As a performer, sometimes I think of actual specific things as I'm playing, mm-hmm. but of course, you're not going to get that. Right. But something happening. Might mean that somebody actually receives some sort of vibe, of course, and yeah. then makes you know if it's a two two little animals nibbling on a cookie. Yeah. And I was thinking about like a sunset or something <laughs> right. like that. It doesn't really matter what the game of telephone is, right? Right. In the middle, and that's something that you know, looking, f- knowing you from the side that I do professionally, mm-hmm. and that is as a performer, and you as a composer. I think that um, where our our lives professionally intersect obviously is in the moment of performance. Mm -hmm. You know, I've played a few pieces of yours now with you in the audience. So who do you think has a rougher time at a premiere performance? Do you think that it's the composer or do you think it's the performer?
1: I was going to say the audience. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's no C option, It's an A and B proposition. I would say the performer. Really? Yeah. I really think it's... You know, once I get to the point where the piece is getting its first performance, we've had rehearsals, we've talked about things, I've, you know, maybe tweaked some stuff. Um, And once... Once I'm in the audience and the first note is played for me, it's sort of um, it's like being on a roller coaster. You know you're on. You know you're not getting off mm-hmm. till the piece ends.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's no stopping it.
1: And um, or
0: if there is a stopping it, oh my god, what a disaster yeah, right, right. has just happened!
1: Right, and there may be there may be a couple of spots where you know where where the roller coaster suddenly plummets and your and your stomach. Clinches mm. that and your happens. stomach clinches. <laughs> yes. for me it's another bodily yeah, part so yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, for me it's my stomach <laughs> and suddenly you think oh god what did i do yeah. uh but then you know then it then it corrects itself and and it goes on and i used to be there were, you know when i didn't write as much music and didn't get as many performances every first performance was this huge fraught Mm-hmm. Event and and for several days before the the performance, I would be nervous mm-hmm. and upset and feel really awful. Um, but the you know the more the more that I've had the the the, sh- the shorter that span of time of nervousness becomes. Till now, it's just like I say, it's you know just before the just before the downbeat, and then uh, and then what happens, happens. There's nothing I can do about it. You might it. be right. You're, I, the, you're the people, unfortunately, you have to... I think that have to lack
0: beat. of control is yeah. hard. It you is know? hard. You know, I mean, as a performer, I mean, I, I hope, at least for myself, I, I'm earnestly trying to please you, the mm-hmm. guy who wrote yeah. it, you know what I mean? So there, that's, that's a little bit of pressure, but I would, for me... Not being able to hold the thing in my hands mm-hmm. and to not be able to at least have some sort of control about the outcome mm-hmm. would, it's just pants shittingly terrifying. Right. I mean, well, like,
1: you know, as you're writing, you know that this is, that there, there will come a day when you get to the double bar and, right. and the music is out of your hands. Yeah. And there's, there's, you know, at that point, well, you can always revise things, but. You know, in theory, at that point, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's anymore. a completed thought. So theoretically. yeah, it's done, and 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 it's up to other people to to make it. Speaking of performances, yeah,
0: here's a segue. Okay. Doesn't really make it work as a segue if yeah. I announce it, That's but it. it's okay. It's like a being, being a mime. I, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be in a box right now. Check it out. <laughs> so you and I went to a performance that will remain sort of nebulous and nameless. Maybe a couple years ago in Brooklyn. Oh, yes. I just kind of want to talk about it and bring bring some sort of, like, uh, get your thoughts on what passes for performing these days. Yeah. So, you know, we went to a classical music performance at a pretty hip space in Brooklyn, and it ended up just being a a, a night of of shitty music that... um, that still got a lot of tap and applause from the captive, more or less captive audience. I'm like I wish that people would boo more right. at 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 music events or I wish that there was some sort of quality control that pop music fans seem to get that mm-hmm. classical music fans don't. Pop music fans will say that shit sucks. Right. But classical music fans will kinda of be like, Hey, thanks for showing up. We're really glad that you were here today. Mm-hmm. Where do we go or what is the state of like modern classical music even in New York that why does it suck so bad? Why <laughs> why why can't people like figure out how to make make classical music and new music work in twenty
1: thirteen? I'm not exactly sure where the question is going sorry, but that's okay, no, no, why can't okay. we oh. boo shit oh, okay. Okay, okay there you go that's something why, else. Can't, why can't we, can't we b- why
0: can't we why can't we get angry at
1: some stuff that passes for good good music um alright well there are a few things well first off one one thing about the performance in Brooklyn don't forget they were serving alcohol yeah that's so true that, that might have depressed. Although, if, if no people, way. Had, if people had, had enough to drink, they would have started... No way. I,
0: you know what? I mean, because I, I go to shows that are not classic music-based, right. that they serve alcohol at, and it enhances right. the experience. Right. It should not diminish the experience. True. I should be more open to something that might be a little wacky right. if, if I'm perhaps not completely straight.
1: Right. Um. You know, uh, well, I mean, this, this has to do with... Um, you know, this is the whole thing about audience behavior, right? We've gotten to a point in uh, in the concert music world where, if you're, where you know, everybody sits. You sit. You don't talk. Which, right. as a composer, I'm glad people don't talk during concerts. But All right. you know, um, no talking, no um, no getting up and dancing, and. <laughs> uh, no um, texting, no. no texting, which I'm also in favor of, but uh, we're at a point where you know it's just everybody has to be polite and but why? why I don't know why I mean you know is,
0: there, is it that we we're, we're scared that only like so many
1: people are showing up in the first place and that it could be uh, you know what it may be I may actually start improving audience. Attendance, fig- you know, might it might we might get more people in at audiences if people knew that they could boo. <laughs> <laughs> right, that yeah. you could actually like I could that. Your really opinion is yourself. welcome. Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: We'll we'll set up a, some netting in front, <laughs> right. and you can bring some rotten fruit. No, you know, it's like I I I I referenced this on another podcast, but um, I I have a recording of some premieres from the New York Philharmonic in mm-hmm. the '60s mm-hmm. when Bernstein was conducting and. Some of these premieres, when they finish, there's about two seconds of silence, and then the crowd lustily boos whatever piece had come. And I, 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 there, I, Never in my lifetime have I ever gone to a classical music concert and heard a crowd grumble and gripe and boo at the end of something. It's
1: mm-hmm. become something that, no matter what, you have to applaud. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was at one, and in fact it was, it was even just talked about it. A couple of weeks ago on the radio um this being the centenary of the rite of spring Mm -hmm. and also piero which thankfully people are not talking about because considering most of the nonsense that people are saying about the rite of spring Mm -hmm. i'm glad that schoenberg is being spared a piece of crap well no just that you know people say stuff that's just largely not true just so that they can now seem um what do we have it's it's periodism i'm not quite sure what to call it where we can we can congratulate ourselves for not being as um
0: as freaked out
1: well not as freaked out but as uh, we we're much more discerning than those troglodytes in 1913 right yeah right and uh no we aren't no not at all so but but you can say Oh, well, they booed this, but now we understand it's a masterpiece. So, of course, we're better because we, yeah. we can see how good it is. Right. Um, Tilson Thomas was speaking to someone on NPR about the Rite of Spring, and he mentioned um, a concert that he did at Carnegie Hall. It's got to be in the early 70s, where there was a premiere of, I guess, the New York premiere of Steve Reich's, I think the piece was Six Organs. Uh, okay
0: <laughs> Is that the instrumentation?
1: Yeah, six electronic Oy organs and, and one maracas player And the one maracas player had Has four maracas uh, And it's just going <laughs> The entire time? It's sort of, yeah, it's sort of like uh, the Terry Riley in mm-hmm. C Where mm-hmm. the piano is doing the repeated uh-huh. C's But anyway, so there's this thick, that, 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 that With maracas and then the six organs Or maybe it was only four organs But it sounded like six uh <laughs> And and they play, you know, it's this piece of, of pretty hard driving, early seventies minimalism. Yeah, and people were going apeshit in the in the audience. There was booing and screaming and nice. catcalling. calling. And nice, uh, people. Somebody next to me got smacked with a rolled up program. Um, and uh, well, was and it exciting? I mean, was yeah, it? I mean, yeah, it was great. I,
0: I would think that being at, at something where people are legitimately pissed off. Yeah. Would, you know, not just bored, but legitimately like, I hate this. It's almost, you know, that that art has has been successful, honestly. If it makes you have Mm -hmm. as violent a reaction as that, you didn't say meh. You didn't say I could take it or leave it. You said I fucking hate that. Right,
1: right. I would much rather have somebody come to me after a concert and say, I thought that was the worst thing I ever heard, than say... Wow, that nice was piece. interesting. Yeah, yeah, right. That was interesting. That was interesting. Well, you've done it again. Oh yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. I loved it. <laughs> right. No. A friend once said to me, and I and I, I I really appreciate him for saying this. Someone who's not very interested in music, but he came to a concert, which is always nice. Um, and he said, "Well, that wasn't too painful." <laughs> <laughs> and I I thanked him for that. Yeah. Because, you know, at least he wasn't being overly... Pu- you could always tell when... I thought it was really
0: going to suck, but it only came in at a solid <laughs> seven and a half, right. so thanks for that. What right. was it that moment in, in Amadeus where Mozart says, when one hears such sounds, what can one think but salieri? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the backhanded non, right. non-comment, non-compliment. Right. So, um... probably going to just edit this let me sure. just let me just think for a second because there was something that we were talking about at, at dinner lunch, that we wanted to, or at lunch we wanted to segue which is about where we wanted to be here do you remember what that was no. it was
1: something on this tip about let me notate the time on this this what is, is 54 i was about to say we should stop the we should stop the tape but of course it's not tape yeah i could just totally like <laughs> just
0: take this out without without any thinking no about no, it.
1: no but it's funny to to think about the, again going back to the physical object it's funny to think about the, the, the you
0: know i want to yeah unspooling i want to record the tape but yeah. i keep getting yelled at for that idea
1: well judy sherman who did engineered my recording uh, she's gone over to digital And she said she does not miss tape at all She Yeah I mean Abe's house
0: data. is like He won't do it He's like fuck that yeah. Find somebody else So what was it? Would oh, you remember
1: Let's see, Let's see.
0: Audiences today
1: uh, anyway. You know if we talk We'll remember it at some other point And then we can just Slide it back in yeah. Huh.
0: <laughs> All right, that's cool. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna move into because we I want this to be about an hour and ten. Okay. So I'm gonna move it, move you into something, into, sure. into it for something. Bloody, bloody, bloody cross talk. So we're just talking, and then I'll figure yes. out where we're gonna plug okay. this back in So yeah, you know. I wish that, uh, you know, I go to concerts a decent amount. I went to a concert in Brooklyn the other night at at the Barclays Center. So oh. that place seats like 15,000 people. Mm-hmm. So you have about 12,000 people in there to see rather rudimentary stuff compared to, like, what we have to do on a regular basis mm-hmm. of classical music. And then you come to... Our concerts, and you're lucky if you get two or three hundred people right. to show up. I wonder, is it because popular music is a little close to a common denominator? Is it because our art form takes a little bit more patience? What What is it that doesn't draw people right. to come see a classical music concert?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- well... This is an hour's worth of of, of (laughs) just preliminaries. But, you know, there are a number of things. And this, of course, I mean, we all think about this, and it's something that I have been thinking about a lot lately. I think there are a few factors, some of which I'll forget as soon as I start talking. But um, one thing is, you know, when I... All right. First off, I'm not sure what the real baseline... Classical music audience size is. And I really wonder if the past, let's say, 60 years wasn't an anomaly where there was actually a kind of bulge in the population of people who went to classical music concerts. And my thoughts about this, and again, you know, this is not something that I've actually sat down and Really tried to work on, although it should be doable, is when radio started. The the networks, NBC and CBS, had orchestras. Right, Columbia, Columbia with Bruno Walter conducted, Mm -hmm. and NBC conducted by Toscanini, Mm -hmm. and. there was a TV program called Omnibus that ran on Sunday mornings for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And Pierre Boulez, on a Sunday morning, Pierre Boulez is on conducting uh, Octane and Integrale by veres mm. Um network television now showing anything having to do oh, with that yeah. i don't think so and you know you and then PBS, pbs is gonna yeah. like oh, completely she's... water it down yeah i know pbs i mean you know the three tenors is now hot yeah. art for yeah like, right andrea bocelli or right. something yeah, showing yeah. up uh, yeah you know when they're not selling some
0: yeah I, I see see great i'm like i see great performances and i'm like oh let's go see what that is and it's like sting and friends and i'm right. like Dude, I mean, you could at least yeah. give me a, like a fucking opera or right. a ballet like every month or so. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then... Um, uh, well, in the American Masters series also, hmm. you know, which should be devoted to or should be, could could ha- could include more Yeah, um, serious art and serious music, and it doesn't. So there's that, but, you know, that probably also... All right, so... You have this um, idea at the beginning of both radio broadcasting and TV broadcasting that somehow classical music, high culture, is something that should be on TV. Mm I mean, even Ed Sullivan had Rudolph Nureyev dancing on there. Of course, there are no variety shows anymore, so forget that. Um,
0: There's no room for edification when... Profit has become the entirety mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. You know, it used to be okay for a broadcasting company to make a normal profit and mm-hmm. then could pr- perhaps be a little bit, kind of, have, have a little bit of largesse to be able to say, well, we think that this is important. Right. But there's no, re- there's no room for anything important anymore because every waking moment must be, how do we get another dollar out of this, right. you know, this narrow spectrum of people in the audience
1: well part of that's media consolidation of course that Mm. everything is owned by two or three corporations publishing they used you know publishers used to use the the best sellers to subsidize the the serious novels Mm -hmm. I doubt that that happens all that much that absolutely does not happen anymore Uh, and you know I think part of it goes you know
0: in in fact to sort of dote on that subject for a second my brother's you know, into pub- you know, publishing a book now with Harper Collins, mm-hmm. and he went to a trade um, convention recently, and all of these decisions now are being made by the marketing department. Right. If you pitch a book to an agent who thinks it might be a good idea, their first thing is, I have to take this to the marketing department, and the marketing department almost always just says, we're not going to make any money off of right. this book. No. So you don't even get in the front door anymore. That the idea is even thought of as something worth
1: publishing at all, unless it's going to make X amount of dollars. If it does, yeah, exactly. If it doesn't meet a certain minimum, Um, and you know, again, it's hard to know where all of this starts because I I see different kinds of threads, and I just it's matter of trace, partly a matter of tracing them back. So you have this where. where you had media thinking that high culture was worth presenting for who knows exactly what reason but they did it um texaco stopped supporting the metropolitan opera it was the longest Mm -hmm. continuous support of uh of you know of a high culture event in all of American broadcasting. It's not as though there's and, not
0: money to burn right, with the right, oil. Right, exactly. You know, they're making record, record profits. Right,
1: and now it's Toll Brothers. Now, of course, we do high-end uh, houses. But why was it? Because the guy who who owns the, the, the CEO of Texaco didn't like classical music, yeah. didn't like opera, so that was it. Now, you know, and as i mentioned before you know i i got piano lessons when i i could have piano lessons when i was in public school i remember in in elementary school some of my teachers playing gilbert and Sullivan. all right so gilbert and sullivan may not be Mm. um you know verdi um, or anything like that but exactly but it is at least it's 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 sort of for a lot of people, that kind of music is an entree into more challenging kinds of music, but you don't get music in school anymore, you don't get art in school anymore because everybody's teaching to the test. Right. And everything's bottom line. Universities are supposed to be run like corporations. Yep. Well, no, corporations are supposed to be run like corporations. Universities are supposed to be run like universities. Yeah. You don't you're not supposed to be thinking of the bottom line yeah. for this sort of thing and you know so universities every schooling now is all essentially trade school
0: you know even they're trying to definitely make universities into trade schools yeah. in a big way mm-hmm. yeah so there's sort of a wholesale multi-pronged kind of diminishment of the arts or mm-hmm. anything outside of the bottom line is right. being
1: an important thing to think about right. on a daily basis. Right. And I th- you know and my guess is we're we're talking about trying to build audiences. Uh, you know, it seems to me that we've got a lost generation or two. And we just have to realize that that there's, you know, if there was a, if there was a bulge 40 years ago. Right. We're in a period of shrinkage now, and <laughs> it's not to say that it can't increase. But I don't think it can until arts education comes back into the schools at the elementary school, you know, starting from kindergarten and continuing on. And, you know, I'm going to... I don't care. I don't care if I sound like an elitist. Do it. Because... This is all about being who you are, baby. okay. Um, Not all... Not all music is created equal. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not to say that it's not... That there are, that there isn't good... There's plenty of shitty classical music. Oh, yeah. And there's plenty of good pop music. Yeah. And it becomes a matter of finding out what's good. But to treat them all as being equal, I think, is really... Is just not mm-hmm. right. They, the Different music serve different functions. And just the way you don't necessarily... I, you know water I can't dance but just the way you wouldn't necessarily want to dance to a piece of Vaburn. right uh, you're also not you know I also don't know that I'm gonna go to something uh, you know that I'm gonna turn on the radio now to and try to get the experience of baby by listening to Lady Gaga right right you can't it's not the same kind right. of thing and to make this assumption that everything has to be like one thing or that everything has to be immediately graspable is part of where the part of where the problem is. I mean, you know, you get these things. Remember when there was that little um, uh, mini interest in chant? yes and so what did people immediately start doing? yes what did people immediately start doing they started putting drum tracks
0: yeah uh, right yeah. so
1: what could be more
0: <laughs> antithetical and, yeah, yeah exactly
1: i mean it's like you know it's like putting hot fudge sauce on anchovies I mean, just, you know i mean this is not
0: you, <laughs> you could get away with it with some music what was that what was that that they had back in the day hooked on classics you could yes if it's got a discernible beat, but if the whole purpose of it is to be outside of
1: time... <laughs> right, doing that, it's yeah. goofy. and then something like a fifth of Beethoven. Oh, yeah. So, you know, what does that do? It takes the first four notes, but yeah. what's interesting about the piece isn't the first four notes. Kind of is, though. Yeah, I mean, but that's, it's what he does to the yeah, first four. Right. What does he do with them? Yeah. And, of course, what does a fifth of Beethoven do? Studiously avoids all those <laughs> <laughs> things... Studiously avoids makes, any development whatsoever. Right, that makes... Bad and interesting (laughs) idea to deal with So You know know, what's amazing though is that
0: Kids in their 20s and 30s actually I think there's an untapped vein Of people who Don't know that they would love classical music Because Mm -hmm. They will listen, it's it's not even A matter of length, they'll listen to 20-30 Minute tracks of Extremely esoteric Electronic dance music that could easily be spent listening to a couple movements of of a Brahms piano quartet or something Mm -hmm. like that. But they would never... They would never know to look that it it would be that awesome. I'm just... You know, I feel like there's an opportunity for artists to find this untapped vein of what probably is a mostly lost two or three... or one or two generations. Mm -hmm. But there, there... I think that there is there's a narrow band within there that mm-hmm. hasn't that doesn't know it loves classical music. Right, right.
1: What's but finding them is, is the trick.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. opengrecords.com is, a, okay. is is part of it. So, let's move on to a completely different subject and that is your love of food. I there's no one in the city that I know who knows more good places to go to and who enjoys them And makes a point of enjoying them as much as you do. So, for my non-New York listeners, where's the best place to get the following in New York City? Where's the best place to get a good Chinese meal? One place.
1: As of the last time I was there, there's this place in Flushing called Laodong Bay. On Casino Boulevard. All right. And I had an astonishingly good uh, northern Chinese meal there. It was... Uh, we were... We were
0: blown away. What about where's the best pizza in New <laughs> <laughs> I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm I know not yet a I'm on the spot I don't care. I don't want to I'm see gonna you I'm going to make up. you take a stand. Okay. Um... Nobody at the other place is going to listen to this. You're not going to like, okay. ruin your chances of getting good service somewhere. Okay.
1: Yeah, see, this is... Chris
0: knows because... Don't do, do that. You're, the, not okay. gonna, you're not going to hurt your chances.
1: Okay. Um, I still like Grimaldi's in Brooklyn. I have a... At, at the foot that. of the yeah. of I, the bridge. Yes, at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, that's one of the... Although one there there one of the
0: still... Like, a, 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 an experience that I recount yes. to other people because if If you cross the Brooklyn bridge often you'll you'll see a long line of people and you're like, "What the hell is that for?" and it's for Grimaldis and you managed to like walk us in the restaurant in front of like a 200 foot line of people <laughs> it was still one of the most impressive uh you know forget about getting into per se or getting into la Bernardin or something yes. like that getting into Grimaldis in front of a group of like a billion tourists that was pretty money thank you. So I'm so but yeah. that's your that's your choice. Yeah. And, and potpourri. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one recommendation of a place that you just think is badass.
1: Okay. Um, well, you can't eat there, but you should go to Russ and Daughters. You can't eat there. You take food out. Right. I mean, it's, okay. It's, and it's so it's what an appetizing store. You get lox, uh, pickled herring, uh, mm-hmm. and it was on Louis. So, so, right, exactly. So, so, so it's a, a full-on old New York Jewish, Jewish New York deli. Jewish, like. Well, actually, not a deli, but an appetizing store. Is so that what the, is called? Yes, it's called? Appetizing store? <laughs> I know. Figure. It's called appetizing. Um, and it's a really, really, you know, this is because of dietary laws. There's this really bright line between delis and appetizing. Delis are meat. Ah. Uh, appetizing is dairy. I see. And fish. So, so not,
0: not the, kosher.
1: It, well, Russ and well, is kosher style, right. but you can have kosher appetizing stores because they don't, they don't have meat. Right. So herring and cream sauce, lox, pickled herring, smoked whitefish, halva. <laughs> from a, a boy from, from rural
0: Virginia, yes. that's like eating food from another planet. Yes. I know. On the whole. But <laughs> that, that would be your potpourri recommendation would it be to stop by.
1: Would be to stop by, get stuff to go, um have them make you a sound, you know, they'll they'll probably make a sandwich for you. They they make one I haven't had it because as much as it's probably great to to get a what they call the super superhebe. And I cannot quite remember <laughs> what's in the superhebe but um <laughs> I've, there are certain things that I'm a purist about, and food tends to be the place where, where I have my very, very serious lines. Like, to me, the idea of a blueberry bagel. Somebody should be, you know, <laughs> drawn and quartered. Whoever invented the blueberry bagel. What's this, this new thing It's like a cronut? Have you seen oh, cr- this? Cr- yes, I saw the, yeah, the cronut, the <laughs> croissant donut. Mm. Now, because neither of those come out of my food tradition, um, so that can, doesn't bother I can you. view it. I can view it with, with detached amusement, but but if it's classical, but if it's old school, school Jewish food, Jewish food, and you start messing with it, it needs that's to be what it is. Exactly, exactly.
0: I have to say that you made. A, I had. I, I we had an ersatz um, seder at, at your place for yes. Passover, and you made gefilte fish yes. that this white boy actually liked. I, yeah, well, I I I have to say, thank you. Your your purity comes into comes into focus with that I mean it's nice. interesting I mean the way that you know you, you are an, an intellectual composer I, 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 that I see as someone who is pretty pure mm-hmm. about the way you go about it and it's interesting that that bleeds into your other great love <laughs> in life as far as I know besides yeah. your wife of course yes. um, which is the food well Dave I, I actually have to cut us off at okay. this point but um, I appreciate it an hour and Fifteen minutes of good stuff, wow. and uh, actually, Even this would be something that I hope we could do again. I and hope like can so. because I actually think that there's m- ground to be trod upon, and okay. if you know, and and uh, this is off the record, yeah. so you know, if you wanted to figure stuff that that y- that you wanted to like chat about, yeah. I'm open to, to doing okay, that. Okay, Yeah, so let me just sort of like cross talk and bring us back into oh, okay. It. So, uh, all right. So, Dave, thank you very much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. I hope we could do it again. So do I. And uh, and uh, I hope we uh, we were supposed to go out to Red Hook today. Yes. On another walking and eating tour, and and let's hope that we get to do that uh, when the weather's better. We will. Uh, uh, we will go out. New York and, a on a, on a rainy day is still the best place in the world. I all right, so. Dave. Thanks a lot. Thank you.